Hello, and welcome to Soothing Pod's Sleep Stories. My name is Arif, and tonight I will be your guide as we embark on an educational journey through history. A journey where we will learn about seven of the most powerful and influential leaders of their time. Together, we will go back in time and explore the lives and decisions made by the Spartan king Leonidas I, Athenian general Themistocles, Alexander the Great, Carthaginian general Hannibal, Julius Caesar, Roman general Marcus Agrippa, and Attila the Hun. We will discuss the world they were born into, how they came into power, and what exactly it is that they did with their power. Before we begin, however, let us take a moment to relax and find peace and comfort in the place that we are in, here and now. Close your eyes and allow your body to sink into the mattress beneath you. Tonight, there are no to-do lists, there are no expectations. By simply closing your eyes and listening to the sound of my voice, your mind and body are starting to rest and relax. Whatever feelings or thoughts were brewing inside of you are now dissipating, leaving you at ease while you lie in safety and comfort of your bed. And soon, even deeper relaxation will follow. With your eyes still closed and your body relaxing deeper, and deeper into the mattress beneath you with every breath you take. Try and imagine that you are not in your room at all. You are still in your bed, cozy and familiar, with the weight of your sheets and the cushion of your plush, comforting mattress. Instead, you are in a perfectly sized pod, a mahogany pod with large glass windows that surround you, providing you with unfiltered views of the vista beyond the glass. And, indeed, there is quite a vista before you, Because your pod is not in your room, nor is it on Earth, you are floating in space, miles and miles and miles above the surface. Below, you can see the world in all of its glory. Against the inky black darkness of space, the Earth pops out like a living marble. White, cottony clouds encircle it, 
moving and trailing through the sky as the earth spins in what looks like slow motion. It is truly remarkable how it is suspended in that sea of black, and it makes the vibrancy of the earth's mosaic of colors even more noticeable. You can see the rusty red and orange swaths of deserts crisscrossing Africa and Asia. You see the sepia-toned mountains rising up from evergreen valleys and prairies all over the world. It is strange to think that they're so massive, so imposing and impressive when you're on the ground, but from space, they are mere ridges, etchings on the Earth's surface that look more like a work of art than elaborate landmarks carved over thousands and thousands of years of Earth's plates moving, crashing, colliding and dancing with one another. You see swaths of beautiful fields of wildflowers that are peppered across the planet, breathtaking bands of red, pink, orange, and blue. Each one is somehow more beautiful than the last as your eyes scan across the globe taking it all in. This is where all our history has unfolded, where our world was shaped, and the things we have come to love and know were created. Your pod slowly inches closer to the earth, gliding down through the atmosphere to get a better look at what's below, and what you see fills your mind with wonder and allows your body to relax more and more. Below, you see the Great Wall of China. Even from above, it is imposing, lacing through the thick, green countryside like a ribbon that's been woven between the trees. It stretches over mountains, through deserts, all the way to the beautiful coast. It was man-made over 2300 years, and during more than nine dynasties, and to this day it stands reminding us of the power of ancient leaders and the power of people just like us. Slowly, the world turns and you find yourself looking down at Egypt. Below, you see the great pyramids rising up out of the sand and blessing the skyline with their unmistakable shape. Looking at them, 
It's hard to believe that they were constructed nearly 4,500 years ago by people that lived, loved, and worked just as we do. This ancient architecture is just another reminder of the abilities, power, and knowledge of our ancestors, of the people of the past. Slowly, you close your eyes again inside your pod. You feel the warmth of this knowledge sweeping over you, relaxing each and every muscle. And now, you are ready for more, to dive into the world of ancient leaders. Ancient leaders who may not have built walls or pyramids that still stand, but have gifted us with knowledge and wisdom that traveled through centuries and have influenced our lives to this very day. Now that we have taken the time to unwind and find peace in the place that we are in, here and now, let us begin our story. The pod you are in still hovers high, high above the earth, gliding just over the planet in a peaceful arc. Then, slowly, very, very slowly, as if by magic, you are drawn back to the earth, beckoned down to tangle with it. You watch as the earth grows closer and closer and closer still, and it's very clear you are heading towards a particular place. Below you, peacefully and purposefully, growing closer by the second, is Greece. Greece, a country of endless, sun-kissed coastlines, of amber fields and evergreen orchards full of bountiful plants, of stark white buildings that pop against the sea of cyan and cerulean. But this isn't the Greece you're familiar with. There are none of those modern buildings stacked along the coast. No contemporary cities buzzing with nice Mediterranean restaurants. No rental places for boats or jet skis that you can dip into when you feel like sailing out along the beautiful coast. Because you aren't in Greece in the 2020s. And it isn't modern Greece you are descending into. It is Sparta. Sparta was a militaristic society and a city-state in ancient Greece, one of the most flourishing and successful to ever exist. 
They were a strict society, but a society were those who were considered to be Spartiates, or elite full citizen males of Sparta, enjoyed rather comfortable living, solid education, and lived in a fine city. In Sparta, women were able to own property, a rarity at the time, and they received education. Young Spartiates were ordered to enter a state-sponsored education program when they were around seven years old, a program known as Agoge. Agoge involved cultivating loyalty to Sparta through military training, hunting, dancing, singing, but also socialized them to become what Spartans believed were honorable members of society. The program itself emphasized self-control, duty, and endurance. Leonidas was one of the many boys who entered the program. Little did anyone know when he entered Agoge that one day he would become the king of Sparta. He was a son of King Anaxandridas II and his first wife. When he was born, his father already had two sons which is why at a young age, Leonidas was not considered an heir to the throne. Leonidas was actually one of very, very few Spartan kings that received agoge training, which many historians believe may have helped contribute to him being the successful leader that he was. But eventually, Leonidas did, indeed, take the throne. After his half-brother Cleomenes I passed away, and his brother Dorius was killed in Sicily, Leonidas was left as the heir, and became the king in 490 BC, which was quite a hectic time to take on such a role. The city-states of Greece often fought amongst themselves, but at the time, they were under a much greater threat. The Persian Empire was invading. In these troubling times, the city-states united to try and defeat the Persian Empire knowing that it was their only chance to survive an invasion. As the Greek most powerful military power, it was Sparta that was put in charge of the military operations intended to protect them from Persia. In 480 BC, the Persians fully invaded, conquering Thessaly, at the time, Thessaly was an incredibly important agricultural region to Greece. 
The Spartans and Athenians struggled to find common ground on how to defend themselves from this threat. Leonidas wanted to take a defensive point that would leave Athens vulnerable, insisting that strategically sacrificing the city would be for the greater good and ultimately lead to them winning the war. The Athenians, of course, were not on board with this plan, not wanting to sacrifice their city. Instead, Leonidas worked with the Athenians and other city-states to find a place where they could successfully defend against the Persians, who had much greater numbers. They settled on Thermopylae, a coastal pass that was narrow and gave the Greeks a chance to win. Leonidas's goal was to stay on the pass and hold the Persians there, fighting for long enough so that the Athenian navy fleet could overpower the Persian navy. By defeating the navy, supply lines would be cut off from people on the front lines, forcing Persians and their leader, Xerxes, to turn back. With Leonidas himself leading the army, they took their positions. Unfortunately, things did not go as Leonidas planned. Leonidas and his army were able to hold the pass for two days, but the second night, they realized that they were about to be surrounded by the Persians, and there would soon be no way out. That's when Leonidas did something that landed him in the history books forever. He called upon his army, ordering the majority of the warriors to leave. Leonidas knew that they had no chance of winning, but by continuing to fight, he hoped to weaken the enemy while saving the majority of the Greek warriors. Though they would be defeated, their army would remain, giving them a chance to fight in the battles to come. Leonidas is remembered to this day because of that brave decision and his expert leadership even in the face of defeat. Though he knew he would not be coming out of the battle, he did what was best for his country. But Leonidas wasn't the only great Greek leader in this time period, and Leonidas certainly wasn't the only one facing the threat of the Persian army. In 524 BC, a boy named Themistocles was born. Though he would one day rise to power 
as a general. Themistocles was raised in the poor immigrant district of Athens, in an area that was outside of the protective city walls. There were strict social rules in place at the time regarding the social hierarchy, and yet a young Themistocles was able to break down these rules. As a youth, he was able to talk young, so-called well-born children into playing with him in the poor district he was from. Even as a child, Themistocles was able to change the way of things and use it to his advantage. And this ability did not go unnoticed. One of his teachers was rumored to have said to him, My boy, you will be nothing insignificant, but definitely something great, either for good or evil. Indeed, Themistocles took to power rather rapidly. In 493 BC, he was made Archon, a high leadership position. With his first position of power, he helped develop Athens' port, known as the Piraeus. He is the reason that the Athenians developed a large and robust navy. Piraeus became the largest naval base in Greece rather rapidly. So, when Leonidas was on the ground fighting the Persians in the Battle of Thermopylae, it was Themistocles who led the navy of approximately 200 ships in battle. However, the most decisive naval battle of the war took place in Salamis Straits. Daylight broke over the waters off the coast of Salamis Island, and Themistocles looked at the day before him with hope, even in the midst of a war. The Greeks lured the Persian navy into the narrow stairs of Salamis. Themistocles ordered this move because he knew something incredibly, incredibly important that the Persians did not. Something that would change the course of the war and the Greeks' chances in it. At a certain time of day, a fierce wind and powerful swell would sweep across the section of the strait, making it incredibly challenging to sail in, especially if you didn't know to expect it. The Persians were caught off guard by this change in weather. Facing the waves and powerful winds, they were stuck in a tight space and unable to maneuver properly. The Greek navy, led by Themistocles, was able to knock down the Persian ships one by one, 
leading to a resounding victory for the Greeks. For his quick thinking and immensely intelligent strategy, Themistocles was considered a hero of Greece. Even Sparta, who was Athens' greatest rival when they were not united against a bigger threat, awarded Themistocles with honors. That region of the world is full of tales of dramatic victories, of ancient wars, of tall tales and mythology, and Leonidas and Themistocles are just some of the great leaders of that time. Alexander III of Macedon, who is much better known as Alexander the Great, is perhaps one of the most well-known men to have ever lived. Born in 356 BC, Alexander was known by many as remarkable from a very young age, and he came from a family that was powerful and gifted beyond words. King Philip II of Macedon was Alexander's father, and he is known for changing the course of Macedonia's fate forever. A man of political prowess and military knowledge, King Philip was able to transform the small kingdom of Macedonia into a powerful, flourishing empire. He and his fellow leaders worked to transform Macedonia through conquest and diplomacy and made it a formidable force in a few short decades. Fortunately, King Philip passed that knowledge and those leadership skills onto his son, and Alexander had help from some other influential figures as well. Aristotle, the famed philosopher, was one of Alexander's tutors. They spent many hours together in an outdoor classroom under the shade of tall trees, talking about philosophy and the ways of the world. Between the hum of bumblebees and the quick buzz of hummingbirds' wings, Alexander would spend sunny afternoons learning about medicine, philosophy, morals, religion, logic, and art. He also greatly admired Aristotle's wisdom, wisdom that we are still learning from to this very day. Alexander took the throne when he was just 20 years old, after his father was killed, and he defeated several other rivals for the throne. As soon as Alexander became king, he set out to do exactly what his father had always dreamt of. 
he wanted to expand the kingdom of Macedonia and conquer Persia. Fortunately, he had his father's famed army, and he had plenty of knowledge and wisdom that had been passed down onto him. With ease, Alexander managed to conquer and unite the Greek city-states. He moved onto Persia, which at the time was ruled by Darius III. In time, he was able to defeat Darius, crowning himself the king of Persia. There were dozens and dozens of battles that Alexander led his army into over his ten years of conquest, and was incredibly successful, stretching his empire all the way to India. Though his methods were fierce, Alexander is still regarded as one of the most successful and powerful rulers that ever lived. However, there's another leader, a general, whose methods were so successful that they are still studied and used to this very day. Hannibal was a Carthaginian general born in 247 BC. Ancient Carthage was an impressive empire that started in modern-day Tunisia, but spread across the Mediterranean, stretching from modern-day Spain all the way to Egypt. At its height, Carthage was one of the largest metropolises in the world, and its ancient city was one of the richest. Its strategic location between the trade routes of the Mediterranean and fertile lands gave it all the potential it needed to flourish. It was in this successful, beautiful empire that Hannibal was raised under an air of mystery. Little is known about his childhood, since the majority of what we know about him was told to us by the Romans, who were ancient Carthage's enemy during the Punic Wars. What is known is that when he was just nine, Hannibal joined his father on a mission to Hispania, a mission where he swore he would never be a friend to Rome and was taught to fight, track, and outsmart any opponent he faced. When he was just 26, he was proclaimed commander-in-chief by his troops and confirmed by the government. His role as a commander would not be an easy one. He found himself fighting the Roman Republic in the Second Punic War, soon after he took his position of leadership. 
As the war with the Romans began, Hannibal decided to bring the fight to them by crossing the snow-capped Alps. But before he started his trek, he came to realize something. He saw the importance of making alliances with different tribes along his route. In order to do this, he portrayed himself as a liberator, someone freeing the people of Iberia and Gaul from Roman control. Just before he set off across the Alps, he managed to use this to his advantage, recruiting 50,000 heavy infantry and 9,000 cavalry. By the time they passed through the Alps, the army was in good shape. It was a beautiful place to pass through, a place of rolling bright green hills, meadows filled with wildflowers, and granite cliffs that hung overhead, providing shade across those moss-coated fields. When he arrived to face the Romans, it wasn't just his loyal army that was in good spirits that he had at his disposal. He had elephants as well. The Romans had never seen elephants before, and heading into battle against these large creatures instilled fear in Roman soldiers which gave the Carthaginians quite an advantage. Everywhere that Hannibal went, his image as a liberator aided him. Several cities chose to side with Hannibal because they believed him to be a savior, and this likability aided him greatly. Throughout the many battles Hannibal faced, in addition to his likability, he was aided by his patience. He took the time to truly understand and learn about his enemy. He studied their habits, their desires, and within those, he found their weaknesses. However, there have been some strategic Romans in history as well, and perhaps the most well-known of those Roman leaders is none other than Julius Caesar. Born in July in 100 BC to a wealthy family, his family claimed lineage from the goddess Venus herself. And though it might seem like the path to the top would be easy for someone of his background, it was a rather long road to the highest leadership role in Rome. Originally, Caesar wanted to be a priest he had the honor of being nominated as the new high priest of Jupiter 
but his position would be short-lived. A civil war broke out in Rome, and the opposing sides fought bitterly. With involvement of prominent families on both sides of the conflict, the final victor, Sulla, conducted a purge of the opposing faction. Julius Caesar found himself targeted, but managed to escape persecution due to the power of his mother's family. Regardless, he lost his priesthood which led to him joining the army. Caesar did well in the army, quickly moving up in the ranks, and was well regarded for his eloquence and intelligence. Soon, he managed to become a general, then the governor of Spain. While in Spain, he managed to quell the fighting between rival tribes and make the region much more stable. He was recognized for his success in the region and then moved on to conquer Gaul. It was his intelligence and fearlessness that aided him in Gaul. He defeated several tribes there, repelled an incursion into Gaul by two Germanic tribes, and followed it up by building a bridge across the Rhine River and making a show of force in Germanic territory before returning and dismantling the bridge. The tribes understood the weight of this message and of Caesar's power. As a result, they never invaded. It wasn't just the expansion of Rome and his wit that put Caesar in the history books. He also decreased Rome's debt, rebuilt two powerful city-states, reformed the calendar, still in use today and gave himself veto powers over the Rome's Senate, thus paving the way of Rome's transformation from the Republic into an empire. When Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, he passed the majority of his fortune down to his great-nephew, Octavian, the first Roman emperor, who was also his adopted son. By accepting his will, Octavian made several enemies, but he did not make an enemy of Marcus Agrippa, who is known as one of the most intelligent Roman warfare military commanders in history. In addition, Marcus Agrippa was an incredibly skilled architect and engineer. Throughout the majority of his life, Marcus Agrippa was the right-hand man of Octavian, also known as Augustus Caesar. He was the general of the army 
and immensely loyal, making many important decisions for Rome. From 44 to 40 BC, Augustus and Marcus Agrippa worked together to fight Julius Caesar's assassins. In 39 BC, Marcus demonstrated his leadership ability by calming tension between local tribes. It soon became clear that Augustus was not a very skilled leader and that he often relied on the intelligence of Marcus Agrippa and other subordinates to lead. When Augustus faced defeat in Sicily, he called upon Agrippa to help him. Agrippa constructed a naval fleet and came up with a plan. Augustus would sail through the Strait of Messina and land on the Sicilian coast. Agrippa would land on the north coast, and Lepidus would land in western Sicily sailing from Africa. Out of everyone, it was Agrippa who was the most successful. Agrippa went on to help Augustus and Rome win several battles, cementing his place in the history books. For our final ancient leader, we will not be discussing a Roman, Greek, Macedonian, or Carthaginian, but a Hun, Attila the Hun to be specific. The Huns were a nomadic group of people who lived in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and the Caucasus between the 4th and 6th century AD. Little is known about Attila's upbringing and his lineage. It is known, however, that he was taught archery, horse riding, and different fighting styles from a very young age. He was also taught Gothic and Latin, so he could communicate with the Romans and the Goths. When Attila was young, the Huns were already a formidable force. But when he became the ruler, he was able to propel the Huns to legendary conquests. He and his brother inherited the empire together. Their first move as leaders was to negotiate a peace treaty with the Eastern Roman Empire. For quite some time, there was peace between the Huns and the Romans. But soon, Attila claimed that the Romans violated the treaty, and that's when he and his brother descended on parts of the Roman Empire, taking over cities with relative ease. In all of the battles that Attila fought, he only lost a single one. He and his men were organized and extremely good riders and archers, 
which allowed them to win against the sword-wielding Romans with ease. All of these leaders helped shape the world to become what it is today. We still learn about their strategies. We still hear their words spoken today. And we live in a world that they could hardly imagine. I hope you have enjoyed this sleep story and it has brought you a night of calm, peaceful sleep. Please, join me again tomorrow for another sleep story. Until then, sweet dreams. <laughs>